Our second reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for, again, gathering us in your name this morning, that we can uh, worship you through song, that we can confess together, that we can affirm our faith together, that we can hear your word read to us um, and over us. God, I I pray that you would be with us now as we open up this text uh, of your word to, to learn from it, to glean from it, to be challenged by it, to be convicted by it. Um, help us, especially for those of us who are here that are uh, just curious about Christianity and they want to know more about what, uh, what this Bible means and what, it's, what, what this, this faith is all about. And I pray that you would open their minds to that and that they would come to believe today. Uh, I pray for those who, who may think that the Bible is um, something that they know or um, they can, they've already gotten everything they can out of it. And I pray that you would uh, surprise them once again today, that you would allow us to behold 
uh, new and wonderful things from your word today. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So just like last week, let me start off with a, with a couple of questions for you, just as a thought exercise. But what in your life right now, if it turned out not to be true, would shake the very foundation of your existence, your entire existence? I mean, it would shake you to the core. I mean, think about that. Let me give you a couple. of These are extreme examples. So, may, and I've, you know, you've heard about these in the culture. Hopefully, you've never experienced this, but maybe you find out uh, your spouse uh, or maybe one of your parents uh, has been living a double life, and they have another family somewhere else in another city, and that comes to the surface. You know, they're they're married. They have other children. They have even have another job, maybe, and they're taking care of them. That that would probably, I would hope. You wouldn't be like, wow, good for you, Dad. Uh, I hope you would be shaken to the very core of that. Or maybe, maybe you find out kind of later on in your life that the nurses in the nursery in the hospital you were born had a little mix-up, and they switched you at birth. And so you find out that the parents that you have, that you grew up with, that raised you and did everything for you, are actually not your parents that you have other parents because this massive mistake was made. I mean, that would shake you to your very core. Your whole identity would be just ruptured because of that. Well, on the opposite side of that, what in your life right now, if it turned out to be true, would do that very same thing? Would, would, would shake your entire existence. Maybe you find out you have this long, long lost uncle, and it's always the long lost uncle for some reason. I don't know why, but maybe you find out you have this long lost uncle, and he has left you millions of dollars, and you just find that out randomly. I mean, that would change you. Maybe, um, like in the Princess Diaries, uh, you discover that you are actually the heir of the throne, of a throne that you had no idea about. So, if some random uh, country, like Genovia, you know, and that's, that's who you are now, your royalty. Well, in today's text, Paul is sort of contrasting and comparing both of these sentiments to say, to ask the question, the one question is to ask, what if the resurrection isn't true? <clears throat> and then also asking, well, what if it is? What if it isn't, and what if it is? Because if either are true, either one of those were true, it would shake the world to its core. Not just you personally, but it would shake the world to its core. It's just like the quote I read last week from Professor Jarosov Pelican said, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. So I want us to look at this in the way that Paul lays out his argument here, and it's in three sections. So the first thing Paul looks at is the absurdity of no resurrection. The second is the reality of a resurrection. And the third is the application of this resurrection. So first is the absurdity of it all, of, of, of not having a, a life after uh, death in verses 12 through 19. 
And in verse 12, Paul begins this section of his letter with a rhetorical question to demonstrate the absurdity of some of those in Corinth who actually deny the resurrection of Jesus. Now understand, the Corinthian Christians believed in Jesus. They believed him to be the the Messiah, and they believed that he died for their sins. They believe all of those tenets of the faith. They just don't believe that Jesus coming back to life is all that important. Now, their their belief was was possibly based on the the dualism of Greek thought that was was very popular in that day that said that the the body is material and it therefore would not inherit that which is spiritual. So it would not receive this resurrected body that Christianity teaches So you had to keep these two separate, the physical and the spiritual, because the physical was bad and evil and corrupt, but the spiritual was good and beautiful and perfect. So this philosophy has already affected the Corinthians, uh, we know, in their sexual lives. We read about that and talked about that in chapter 5 of Paul's letter. So it was causing them just to use their bodies however they wanted to um, sexually, and Paul calls them out on that. And it's this same philosophy that was, that was kind of wrecking their lives in that way. And now we're seeing that it has affected them down to the theological core of Christianity. So it's not just affecting some kind of actions over here and some sort of uh, a topic, a conversation, we address it but it was actually at the very center of who they were. And it was affecting their theology, their doctrine. Because based on all of this, they were denying the resurrection. Now this should be a subtle subtle warning to all of us, I think. Um, I know that there are still, there's still philosophies in this world. There's uh, conspiracy theories um, galore. All you have to do is just a YouTube search on that and you'll see Uh, all of those. There's different practices that we have in place in in different churches and different traditions that seem innocent enough, or they sound appealing on the surface. But once you hold them up against Scripture, they do not stand for very long. And these have the danger, even though they might look innocent, and they might look like something you just kind of dabble in on the side. These things have the, are, are, have the, they're dangerous because they lead you away from the core teachings of the gospel. So for Paul, this is inconceivable that anyone would deny the resurrection. And I agree, especially after reading through the confessional verses that we read through, that we looked at last week in verses 3 through 11, that not only points to the written accounts of the Old Testament uh, scriptures concerning the resurrection, one that we just read this morning, but also to the eyewitness accounts of people the Corinthians could have corresponded with, not including Paul himself, although they did have access to Paul right then and there and who also wrote these things down for for those of us to remember and to have, and we have what's now called the New Testament. So you can see with all of this evidence that is backing up the, the sort of the tenets of the Christian faith, you can see how this is all absurd, especially to someone like Paul, who has already said to them, you receive this, you are living in it, you are standing on it. 
how can this be? How could you deny the very center of the Christian faith? And it shows us why Paul takes a massive chunk of this letter, 58 verses, to address this singular topic because it is so vital to who they are as believers, as followers of Jesus. Because the implications of no resurrection are monumental. It's not just a little kind of theological kind of argument that's happening over here on the side. It is monumental because it is central to the faith. Why? Because as Tim Keller has said, he says the resurrection is the hinge on which the world pivots. The hinge not just on which you pivot personally or your own spiritual life kind of pivots personally, but the hinge on which the world pivots. So if the resurrection isn't true, it affects not only you and I and the churches around the world, it affects the world as a whole. So in verses 13 through 19, Paul uses a series of seven conditional clauses to illustrate what's at stake if there is no resurrection. And these, or sorry, seven or six conditional clauses. So these six clauses lead to logical consequences, and each consequence then becomes the basis for the next premise. So what Paul is doing here is he is building on each one of these premises to, to, to take the Corinthians to the logical conclusion of their belief in verse 12, which is there's no resurrection. And the logical conclusion of that we'll see is hopelessness. It's hopelessness. So premise one, if there is no resurrection. So during this particular time in history, someone coming back from the dead was not something that was within the realm of possibility, okay? You have to understand that. This was not just some, uh, we might think like because we watch, you know, watch, you know, fantasy shows or like Game of Thrones or uh, something like that, or we read fantasy novels like Will of Time or things like that, and so we have this imagination that is just going wild, and we think, oh, oh well, that's that's the same thing we're talking about here in the Bible. It's not. Their belief system was much like ours today. Resurrection was not something what, that was readily something that people were believing and talking about. It wasn't any easier for them, is what I'm trying to say. So in, in his book on the resurrection, N.T. Wright offers several examples of the line of thinking that existed during this time. He said, when the ancient classical world spoke of and denied resurrection, there should be no controversy about what the word and its cognates referred to. It was a coming back again into something like the same sort of life that humans presently experience. Resurrection was not one way of describing what death consisted of. It was a way of describing something everyone knew did not happen. The idea that death could be reversed or undone or could, as it were, work backwards was not within their realm of belief. So the only logical conclusion to this, no resurrection, was not even Christ had been raised, which is the ultimate conclusion that leads to all sorts of other problems, beginning with premise number two. 
If Christ has not been raised, our preaching and faith is in vain, Paul says in verse 14. Our preaching and faith is in vain. That, That is, the entirety of the gospel that Paul has preached and proclaimed to the Corinthians is now emptied of all meaning. It makes no sense. It is a pointless message. And if the the message that Paul has proclaimed is pointless and emptied of all meaning, that means your faith and my faith in the gospel is empty and useless and pointless. And what I'm doing right now would make no sense. And you sitting here listening to me would make no sense if there is no resurrection. Because the gospel then is a sham. Which leads to premise three. So if our preaching is in vain, then we are misrepresenting God, Paul says in verses 15 through 16. We are, as one commentator put it, uh, false witnesses declaring a false message about this God. Because we preached that we believe in a God who can raise people from the dead. We preach that that we believe even that he raised his son Jesus from the dead as well. And if there is no resurrection, then that is not true. And God is not who we say he is. So we're better off just believing in some Greek myth like Zeus or whoever. Name the God you like. Which then leads to premises four and five. So if, if it's not true that God raised Jesus from the dead, then a few other things would then be true based upon this lie. One is, again, your, Paul reiterates, your faith is futile. Your faith is worship. Um, and that is, is what, what Sigmund Freud talks about um, is actually true, that, that human beings have invented God out of desire to find security in the midst of a fearful, natural world. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. That the disciples, in some sort of early conspiracy theory, invented the resurrection of Jesus to propagate their own message and their own religious cult. So another consequence of God not raising Jesus is that we are still in our sins. We proclaim this message that that Jesus dying on the cross takes away the sins of the world. That this is what Jesus has come to do. The resurrection, we would say, is the climax of the gospel. And it's what gives meaning to Christ's death. And Christ's death is what gives meaning to the resurrection because it's in both of these acts of Jesus that vindicate his people of their sin, that removes their sin from them. So if Christ is not raised, there is now no vindication of your sin because his death would be just like everyone else's death. There's a theory that Jesus was just a a, a really good man who lived a really good life, um, but he was just like every other man that that walked this earth and lived a really good life, and that his death was just an example to us to do the same thing. Well, if there is no resurrection, that's true. 
Another consequence is that those who have died in Christ have truly perished, that the grave is the end, that death is final, and that's it, period. No resurrection of Christ simply means no resurrection of the dead, which leads to premise six. And this gets at what life is with no resurrection, which is our only hope is in this life now. And Paul is getting at the philosophy of his day when, he's, when, when dealing with this sort of dualistic worldview that says the spirit is good and beautiful, but the physical is evil and wrong. So Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, then you are only left with the physical. That's all you got. There is no spiritual apart from Jesus being raised from the dead. So all you have is this physical evil body. And in the Corinthians' current understanding, that was not something they would have been pleased with. That would not be something that would make them happy. Now, this is also the sentiment in our own modern world. This isn't just an ancient sort of thought. Um, The actor and comedian and pretty outspoken atheist, Ricky Gervais, uh, gives a good overview of this sort of cultural disposition. And he says a lot of things, but this is one of the things he says. He says, enjoy life. Have fun, be kind, have worth, have friends, be honest, laugh, die with dignity, make the most of it. It's all we've got. Period. And you know what? If there is no resurrection of Jesus, then there is no resurrection of the dead, you and I, or those loved ones who have gone on before you in Christ, if none of that is true, Ricky Gervais is our prophet. He's right. It's all we've got. This is all we've got. And yet Paul tells his readers, if this were true, then you and I, people of faith he's speaking to here, are the most to be pitied of all people. Because we've believed a lie. We've believed this sham. That everything that we've invested in with our, with our entire being is a joke. This would shake us to the very core of who we are. So this has implications even with those who, who still claim to be Christian and deny the resurrection, like some in Corinth were doing. Uh, these, like the Corinthians, who don't believe in resurrection, have to understand that, that their present faith is without significance. That is to say, if this is the boat in which you are sitting in this morning, you cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus the resurrected Christ, if you don't believe he came back from the dead. It it is the, the core of Christianity. And to not believe that is to not be a follower of Jesus. And so Paul has just painted this picture of absurdity for the Corinthian believers to show them this is what life would be. It would be absurd. It would be depressing. 
it would be hopeless. Then in our second point, Paul points to, points to the reality of a resurrection in verses 20 through 28. Now, to understand the reality of the resurrection, you have to understand that the Christian doctrine of the resurrection includes that all believers will be raised in the future as well. All believers will be raised because Christ has been raised. So we actually confessed this earlier uh, in, in, in the Apostles' Creed when we said together, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe that I will be raised with Christ because he has been raised. Now, some of you didn't grow up with that sort of belief system. Maybe you were taught that um, when you die, uh, you'll go to heaven um, and you'll sprout angel wings. And, you know, sometimes you see that on car bumper stickers where they're remembering somebody on the back of their, you know, Ford Taurus or whatever. And they have angel wings and they have their name in between and when they, when, you know, when they were born and when they died. And, and for some of us, that is the, the idea that we have, that we will get wings and we will become angels, and that is what we'll do in eternity. Or, or maybe you just have believed that we are just a disembodied soul sort of floating around in the clouds in heaven. And that's who you are, and that's what, it, what, that's, that's what it's going to be like. Both are wrong. So you can peel the angel wings off the back of your car this afternoon. Because God's intention is that you and I would live with him forever as whole persons, both body and soul. Now, we'll look at this a lot more next week in next week's text, but this is why a, a theology of the body is so important. Because it reminds us that, that these are the very bodies we've been given by God and the same body that he will make new. Paul reminds the Philippians of this in his letter to them. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, Paul says these words. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And that is our future, friends. And the way this is confirmed is what Paul says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning fallen asleep there means they have died. So the term first fruits is an agricultural term. Uh, all, of, all of Paul's audience would, would, would have known what that meant. Um, but it was, it was a term used to denote the first fruits from a harvest that one would give as an offering to God. And so these first fruits signified that there was more fruit to come. If you didn't have first fruits, you probably didn't have a great crop that year. But to bring the first fruits out and to bring them before God signified that there is more fruit to come. And this is what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians, to his readers. And he explains what he means in verses 22 through 23 when he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul is giving, giving this order, saying, Jesus has been raised from the dead first. That has to happen. He is the first fruits of resurrection. But next is us, because Jesus has been raised. So Paul is saying that just as Adam functioned as our federal representative, so Romans 5.19a, the first part of that verse, for as by the one man's disobedient, Adam, the many were made sinners. So this, and this sin is, is passed on down to us, imputed to us, the theological term for that. But now, as believers, Christ functions as your federal head and as the federal head of his people. So Paul goes on to say in Romans 5.19, the second part of that, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Which means everyone, everyone who places their faith in Christ inherits resurrection life because Christ has defeated death. And then you have verses 25 through 28. Paul writes this, just to kind of put an emphasis on what this means. Paul writes, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So a lot of subjection there. Um, but what that is saying there is that Jesus is going to make it right, 100%. And so within these verses, you'll see uh, what Tim Keller was talking about earlier, that the resurrection is the hinge on which the world pivots, because Paul is saying that not only will the resurrected Christ return and raise his people up to life, again, he also says that every ruler, this is earthly rulers, and every authority and every power associated with death, sin, and decay will be destroyed, will be wiped off the face of this earth, and he won't stop until every one of them is under his feet. He will defeat it completely. Now, as it stands right now, the United States has the most powerful military in the world. And spending roughly, you know, some chump change, about $875 billion uh, to make it such, But as powerful as our military is, and for the amount of money that is spent, there is one enemy it will never defeat, and that enemy is death. 
No matter how much money is spent, no matter how hard you try, it will never be defeated. For it is only Christ who has done this and will continue to do it until every last remnant of it is destroyed. And this hope is only realized if Christ has been raised. And it's that same hope in a resurrected Christ that changes who we are because the resurrection is not abstract. It's not just this kind of random idea that we kind of hold out here, but it's, it's something that applies to your life directly right now as we sit here, which is what Paul gets at in verses 29 through 34, this application of the resurrection. Now, at first glance, I don't know how you thought about these verses, um, but I know you have some thoughtful ears that would probably have perked up at, at, at some of these things that were said in these, this last section, but they do sound very strange, uh, like they don't belong with what Paul has just uh, walked through, talking about the absurdity of the resurrection and talking about, well, what if the resurrection is true? Then all of these things are true. But if we look a little closer, we'll see that Paul is making a point, and he's doing so by applying the resurrection directly to his readers' lives with what is actually happening in their lives in this moment here. And, Paul, and so Paul returns again to the absurdity of denying the resurrection. So he says, if the resurrection isn't true, why do we do the things that we do? So two questions Paul is asking in verse 29 based on this. First, if it isn't true, why do you baptize people on behalf of the dead? I'm just saying, if, it, if the resurrection isn't true, why do you do that? That's the first question. The second question is uh, personal for Paul, but if, if it isn't true, why do I, Paul, put my life at risk for the gospel? If it's a lie, if it's not true, why do I do this? Why do I live my life in this way? Because if you know Paul, all you have to do is go back and, and, and act, and you'll see Paul was living the good life. Paul had everything, everything we could ever want or dream. He had prestige, he had power, he had the right degree, he had everything. And so Paul is saying, if it's a lie, why would I do this? So to answer these questions, Paul addresses two ideas that the Corinthians were falling into because of their lack of belief in the resurrection, which continue to show up in our modern world today. And those ideas are this, self-preservation and self-indulgence. Self-preservation and self-indulgence. So self-preservation is what Paul is getting at in verse 20, verses 29 through 32, when he says this, otherwise, what do people mean by ba being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people, be, are, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? So, so in verse 29, it's an interesting verse, and there are many theories to what it means, but most likely Paul is referring to the practice of vicarious baptism here. And, and this is well known today because this is something Mormons practice. They practice a form of vicarious baptism, being baptized for the dead. Um, I'm not going to go into the depths of this right at this moment. It's not the time nor the place. Um, it's, and it's also really unclear what exactly it is that Paul is referring to here in 
the Corinthian culture. And thankfully, that's not the main point of what Paul is trying to get at here. Now, I think that Paul may be referencing something, uh, some things that, that, that others in the city were practicing because the Corinthians had sort of assumed some of those things because they were good and they kind of uh, got them in with the culture in which they lived. And, and so maybe some others in the church were beginning to practice this uh, vicarious baptisms um, because of what they had seen in the culture. But just as Paul does when he was in Acts and he's pointing at the, the gods, uh, the statues to an unknown God, and he uses it as a reference point, I believe that's what Paul is doing right here, right now. And so Paul is saying, much like we say today, if the resurrection isn't true, why all the fuss? Why all the fuss? Why spend so much time concentrating on it and thinking about it? Why go through the trouble of this particular weird ritual that you are, that you are participating in? Why are we even talking about it? Why are we debating about it? Why are we writing articles about it? Why are we writing books about it to try to disprove the resurrection? If it's not true, then why all the fuss? So the main question Paul is asking is, what is the use? What is the use in this practice if there is no life beyond death? Why are you trying to preserve life in this way? Even for people who have gone on. So that's the first way that Paul talks about self-preservation. The second way Paul talks about it is to talk about himself, his own experience. So if, if, if it's not true, why would I put my life on the line for a lie? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul lays out how he's done this exactly, how he's put his life on the line. I'll just read those for you. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. So he had attempts on his life. He was almost assassinated. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from, other, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I mean, I'm in danger from every side, he says. People are trying to take my life. And if it's not people trying to take my life, it's the elements that are trying to take my life. I'm, I'm without food. I'm without water. All of these dangers are around me. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, all of this is pointless if Jesus has not been raised. And this goes for the disciples as well. His followers, if the resurrection were made up, if the resurrection were a conspiracy and Jesus was a madman, because that's the only other logical conclusion, is if, if Jesus was not raised, if the things that he said weren't true, then he was crazy. The disciples, Paul, instead of trying to propagate this message, 
would be doing everything they could to preserve their life, to disassociate themselves from this madman, this, this Jesus who has, been, who has been telling us this lie, this, this false religion, this cult. They would be distancing themselves from that. But instead, you see them do the opposite. They connect themselves to Jesus. Why? Because they saw him with their eyes be raised from the dead. So self-protection is the first. Self-indulgence is the second idea Paul is addressing here. Um, you might know of self-indulgence. It's been, it's been called hedonism. Hedonism is, is, is a philosophical theory, meaning that pleasure, which is the absence of pain, is the highest and the proper aim of human existence. That's hedonism. That's self-indulgence. So pleasure can be things like sex or drugs or alcohol, name your vice. But it can also include any intrinsically valuable experience like reading a good book or going to the beach, or exercise, or playing video games. Really using pleasurable things as a means of escape from this world. And so Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, then it would be better to indulge. Paul is giving them permission. Look, if this isn't true, it would be better for you to indulge all of your senses because there is no other hope or life other than this one. And so we do. We just need to eat and drink and enjoy ourselves and live for ourselves as much as we possibly can. What point does it make to be good or to do good if this world is all there is? So Paul has this quote from Isaiah verse, uh, uh, chapter 22, verse 13, that he says in verse, in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And this is a great reference point for, for Paul and for his readers, because in that passage in Isaiah 22, the Israelites were being held under siege by the Assyrians. Uh, certain death was upon them, we could say. And instead of repenting uh, as the Lord had commanded them and demanded of them, instead of doing that and turning back to the Lord, who would care for them and protect them and watch over them again, they held festivities and parties. They ate and drank in the face of their certain annihilation. We're going to die anyways, guys. Let's throw a party. They saw no future and had no thought of God at all. So the next best thing was to party before dying, to live it up, to enjoy life while it was here. And this is what Paul says is the alternative to no resurrection. Eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. Now some might say to this, well, the point of living a good life then, if there is no resurrection uh, on this earth, is, is to leave it to others. Uh, so, so others can have a good life as well. So they can, they can uh, enjoy this great planet 
for as long as it's around. So we need to, to, to recycle and to treat people nicely and to, and to do good to them, as Ricky Gervais said earlier. And this has recently been called uh, having a secular faith, actually. That's, that's the words that are used, having a secular faith. Um, in his book, uh, it's a book titled This Life, is written by the Swedish author, and he's a philosopher and a professor, I think, at Yale or one of those uh, Ivy League schools. But his name is Martin Hoglund, and he communicates this very philosophy for 400 pages in his book This Life. The, the ironic thing about this book, if you ever wanted to pick it up and read it, is that he has to uh, steal from Christians in order to make his points. <laughs> it's really interesting. But he believes that death is the motivator to live a good life. That death alone is the motivator to live a good life. To get all you can out of it and to do all you can for others while you're here because that's it, nothing beyond. And that's what motivates us to a good life. And he argues that belief in an afterlife, a resurrected life, actually makes us less likely to live as a steward of this world and this body we've been given. He explains what this secular faith is. He says, quote, We must acknowledge the utter uh, fragility of what holds our lives together, our institutions, our shared labor, our love, our mourning, and yet keep faith with what offers no final guarantee. This is the double movement of secular faith. Did you catch that? To keep faith with what offers no final guarantee. And what, is, what offers no final guarantee? What's this life? It's the things of this world. They offer us nothing beyond uh, what we can see, feel, and touch now. And Martin Hoglund admits that. So our hope is then is in these broken systems and broken structures and broken relationships of this world. That's what we're left with. And if there is no resurrection, he's right. And self-indulgence is what we should strive for. Another way in which they, they, the Corinthian self-indulge is hinted at by Paul's quotation actually from a play in verse 33. When Paul says, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. And some of you may have quoted that to your children. Uh, but it is actually from a play that, that, that Paul is quoting from here. And Paul is saying that their denial of the resurrection has led some within the church to take up the practices of the surrounding culture, which was sinful and wrong, and pulling them away from the gospel. And this all arises because there is no resurrection. They believe in no afterlife. And in verse 34, Paul makes this explicitly descriptive uh, when he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul is saying that they are living with intellectual knowledge. They know all the right things. They've read all the right books. 
They can say yes and amen to a lot of what Paul is saying. But they have no transformative knowledge. They haven't truly applied the the resurrection hope to their own life. And we've seen this throughout Paul's letter. Just in the basic understandings of family and even uh, even, um, gender and, and different things like that and sexuality. They're not applying this to their life. So the so-called spiritually elite who flaunt their gifts of wisdom and knowledge have to be humbled over and over again. Paul has already done this and made to refocus on Christ. And an application of the resurrection is what sets you in the right direction. Knowing that this life is not all there is, as Martin Hoglund says and Ricky Gervais says, Because the resurrection is true, it's what causes us to live obediently to Christ in this earth now, while at the same time anticipating the day when all will be fully realized in Christ at his second coming. When all, as Jesus says at the end of Revelation, all will be made new. So the resurrection of Jesus changes the way you live but it also changes the way you die. And this is a resurrection hope because it is true. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... At least I am humbled by your word today, this, this grand reminder of a raised Messiah. And how much uh, my own life and our life as a congregation and uh, even just this world hinges on the truth of this reality. And so we are thankful for what we have before us that reminds us again and again and again that it's all true. That Jesus came and died and was buried and on the third day rose. And it was witnessed by many who can give uh, eyewitness testimony to the truth and reality of the resurrection. And so because that is true, God, I pray that we would be a people who live in light of it, that we would uh, not take what we've heard uh, this morning and forget about it tomorrow or this week, but that we would be a changed people because the resurrection is true. So we thank you, O Christ, for your obedience uh, and for coming and living and dying and rising so that we could be renewed and so that we could have life Uh, abundantly. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.